0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. morning, everyone. Um, If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Proverbs, chapters various. Um, I'm going to jump around a a lot today. Today... Last week, we talked about God's will. The last two weeks, we actually talked about God's will. We talked about um, God guiding us, and I want to tie that into our work. I want to tie that into our jobs. I want to tie that into our vocation, or as some would say, I want to tie it into our calling in life. And so, let me read some various Proverbs today, and then I'll pray, and we'll get started. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings... They will not serve before the obscure. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food in harvest. at harvest. How long will you lie there, oh, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man." As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. A sluggard buried his his hand in the dish, and he is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. A sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed if I go to the public square. I went past a field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity, like an armed man. That's our text this morning. Let me pray, God. I thank you for your your word, and um, I just pray, God, that we would grow in wisdom today. I pray that you would help me to communicate the thing, these things, uh, simply, um, clearly, Lord, and with conviction as well. And I ask, God, that you would give us hearts to receive and ears to hear. Um, for some of us today, we need to hear this teaching. For others, we need to file it away as, um, as something to think about later. But I know there's many of us that need to think about this right now. So give us ears to hear and to receive uh, your word, Lord. And may my words fall away. Um, use me this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, I remember my first job and how my first job shaped how I thought about work and how I thought about work for a very long time. My first official job, like the first job I got like a W-2 at the end of the year for, was working at at a golf course um, as a maintenance guy. I was 15 years old. It was a summer job in Bakersfield where it gets about 110 in the summer. It was outdoors, and I hated it. I hated this job. The reason, one of the reasons why I hated this job was because I had to wake up every morning at 4.30 a.m. to go to work. 15 years old, my summer vacation, waking up at 4.30 to be at work at 5.00 had to wear these heavy coveralls and weed whack the, the like lakes and mow the tea boxes and rake out fairway bunkers, all in the heat of a Bakersfield summer. And my dad, the reason why I had this job is my dad made me get a job when I was 15. He's like, you can get a work permit, you're old enough to work, go out and get a job, because he wanted me to learn the value of hard work and the value of a dollar earned. That's what he said. I want you to learn the value of Hard work and a value of a dollar earned. He tried to wake me up in the mornings, like on Saturday mornings, to mow the lawn and pay me, but that never worked out. So he's like, you need to go out and get a real job. You need to learn these valuable lessons. And I did learn these lessons. I learned the value of hard work. And I learned this value by realizing I did not want to work outdoors ever. Like, I was there, I'm like, I'll never work outdoors. I need an office job. I need air conditioning, I can't. And every time, I, would, I was the, obviously the youngest guy there. It was like a summer job, and all the other maintenance guys were like, Dave, listen, you stay in school, man. And you get a job where you work <laughs> indoors. I'm like, I will, I promise. I'll see you guys later, you know, next summer. And I promise that I'll work indoors. That was like my promise to these guys. Anyway. I learned the value of her, I've also learned the value of a dollar earned. I, the way I learned this was I realized when I got a check that I can buy what I want. Like, it's my, I work, and I hate, I hate I hate going to work that early, and I hate being out, outside in the, in the sun, but I got a check, and I can buy what I wanted. I also learned how to goof off, how to waste time during work, how to get out of work while working, how the real goal of work, like, the real goal of all work was to be done with work. I mean, not like done with a your job, but like try to get out of work or to get off of work. Like you worked for the weekends. That's what I learned. You put in a really hard five-day, six-day work week to have that day off or till 5 p.m. or whatever you got off. Work was ultimately about not working. Work was ultimately about how to retire or never work again. And the goal of work I learned when I was young was to not work. Now, when I became a Christian, I learned to work a little differently. I became a Christian a few years later. Um, I learned to be more honest at my work, um, to try harder for the glory of God because God's always watching me sort of thing, Um, to cuss less at work, that sort of stuff. (laughs) But how are we really supposed to see our work? Because I think a lot of us, you might have this, you might not admit maybe as, as blatant as I did right then, but you might think that I work right now to become financially independent so I'll never have to work again. I work for Saturdays and Sundays. I work for vacation. I work for time off. I work for that paycheck so I can do what I want. How are we really supposed to see work? What is work all about? Is it about the money? Is it about retirement or financial independence? Or is it about the weekend or supporting our family or doing what we love? What is work really about? The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about our work. And what it does throughout the book is contrast the diligent worker with the sluggard, okay? Can we bring this word back, sluggard? This word is so awesome. I, I just a mental picture of like some greasy, slothy person who moves really slow and always looks high and has like Cheetos on his shirt. Like just that, oh, uh, you know, that slow, sluggard sort of per- It's the lazy person. And we read several Proverbs this morning that contrasted the diligent person with the sluggard, the lazy person. The lazy person or the is the, the sluggard is the funnest person for the sages to pick on. The sages, sa- sages saved all their best comedic material for lazy people. It's like, okay, all the funny proverbs, those are for the lazy ones, okay? Like they used, they saved all their comedic material for them. Look at a couple of them. This is really funny. No one really laughed when I read them. I don't know why. You might not have been paying attention, but it was funny. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard on his bed. That's funny. Like a a door on a hinge like this. How does a sluggard just back turning in bed? Does he ever get out of bed? He's not just anchored to his bed, he's hinged to his bed. Doesn't ever leave bed, he's hinged to it and he just keeps turning over. The alarm goes off, just snooze over again, snooze over. A sluggard never wanting to get out of bed. Just a great mental picture. The next verse is a sluggard buries his hand in, in the dish and he's just so lazy, he can't bring it back to his mouth. That's a good, it's like you open a bag of chips, you're like, oh, that was hard. I'm over it. I can't do this. I just can't. It's just a great mental picture. But what they're saying, what the, what the sages are saying is that he, ne- he doesn't ever get out of bed. He or she is always making up some, some reason to stay in bed longer, a little, a little, a little, if you read those. Proverbs, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little of the folding of the hands. I don't know what that means, really. But it's like a little, a little. And it's not this huge, giant leap of going, I'm not going to do anything ever again. Just small, incremental steps. Sleeping in a little bit more. A little bit more sleep. A little bit more slumber. A little, a little, a little. And they're taken over. It's also talking about how a sluggard, a lazy person, starts a job, but he never finishes the job. They start, they're great at starting things, but they can never see it through. They're great at pour, pouring a bowl of cereal, but they're too lazy to eat it. And it's a very great analogy, and that's what he's saying. The next one is, a sluggard says, there's a lion outside, all right? I'm not gonna get killed in the public square, I'm staying inside. Like he makes up excuses. Like, are you going to work? No, there's like people out there that wanna kill me. Like, The buses are like filled with people that can like stab you and like there's dirty I can't I can't go outside I'm staying at home today. I'm not I'm calling in from work because there's lions in the street and a sluggard a lazy person makes up excuses See the sluggard sees work And it's the way that and what proverbs was saying is that there's a certain way a lazy person Or a sluggard who isn't just like lazy, but it's their perspective of work the way people see work The sages say that a slugger sees work as nothing more than a necessary inconvenience en route to the true goal of life. And the true goal of life is not working. Life is about not working. So I go, I get through work, or I put off work, and I shortcut work. I do whatever I can to get through or get to the place where I'm not working. And then what commentators call the most insulting thing that it says in Proverbs to a sluggard is it tells the sluggard to go and observe the ant, to go and learn from the ant. The ant, the smallest and mindless, most of mindless observable creatures in the world. It's like you go to, you're so dumb that you can go to an ant and learn. This is what it says. Look at verse six in chapter six. Go to the ant, you sluggard. I mean, how insulting. The the crown glory of God's creation is to go to an ant, and then by watching an ant, you're like, oh, I see the meaning of life now. (laughs) Like, that's how unwise you are. But there's a lot of wisdom in this. Consider an ant's ways and be wise. Consider its ways. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food in the harvest. Now, what are we to learn from the ant? The ant... It, what what the, the sages are saying here is the ant was created to work. Not mindlessly, but the ant was created instinctively to work. It needs no one watching them. It needs, it needs no one to make sure that they're, do, they're doing the work right. They need no incentives. You don't see, you don't watch an ant farmer watch ants and see like ants with like a supervisor white coat or something going this way, everyone this way, like helmets on and stuff like You don't see that, you don't see ones with whips and like go this, like you don't see any of that. They just all march, they all do what they're supposed to do. And there is no incentives for ants. They're not like we're working for the weekend. They're doing all of this because they were created to work. And they were created to work for the common good. When you get an ant farm, you don't see them building their own little ant condos. You see them all working together for the common good. They build a farm, a community, and all of this is instinctive. All of this was, was, was like born in their created sort of being. And so the sages are saying to us, go to the ant and learn that they were created in some glorious way to work for the common good. And they don't need incentives. They don't need people whipping them. They don't need people saying, you better do this. You better do that. They don't need foremans or bosses. They could actually, there's something inside of them that goes, I am working for the common good. That's what I'm here to do. Now, we were created in the image of God, you and I. The Bible says this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's called the Imago Day. We are created in God's image. And therefore, we were created to work. Work is Pre-fall. That is, it was there before sin entered the world. When everything was perfect, Adam and Eve were in the garden, God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work and to keep it. There was work in the garden. Work is a part of our created nature, a part of our created order. Work is part of the garden plan. Work isn't bad. Work isn't just about money. Work is not just about not working. Most of us have an idea of work as it being bad. It's a necessary evil. And the only way really through work is through work. We're like, we got to work. we got to work to retire. we got to work for that vacation. we got to work for the weekend. So the only way to Friday is Monday. That's what we think. It's like, i got to start Monday because the sooner I start Monday, I can get to Friday and get off of work and do what I want to do with my life. But this is, we see work like as the valley of the shadow of death. We have to go through it. It's like, ah, oh, work. It's this drudgery. It's the valley of the shadow of death. I heard someone before tell me that they wanted to work so they can retire by 30. They wanted to make so much money that they can not work by 30. And all of us in here, if I was to say it to you, you're like, and everyone said, amen. Like that would be a great, but that's seen work in such a wrong way. That's not how we're to see our work, especially as people, the people of God, that is not how we're supposed to see our work. Let me fast forward to the very end of everything. The Bible calls it in the New Testament, the new heavens and the new earth. And in the Old Testament, we're given a small glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. In Micah chapter 4, in Micah chapter 4, we read this. Many nations in this time, this time in the new heavens and the new earth, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God, the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Then it says this. This is a very, very commonly quoted verse. At that time, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture about the new heavens and the new earth. How when Christ makes all things new again, this is how it'll be. Some major points to take away here. The first is that there will be peace in the new heavens and the new earth. We will take our swords and our spears, our weapons, and turn them into farming equipment. We will trade war for agriculture. But here's the obvious point. If you're following along, you might have already gotten there. The obvious point is that there will be work. You will have your plowshare, not just to hold. You're not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth like, why are you holding that shovel? I don't know. <laughs> like, gave me a shovel. Like, I had a gun, but now I have a shovel. I don't know what to do with it. You're going to work in the new heavens and the new earth. Like, you're going to have plow. There's going to be plowshares and pruning. There's going to be farming. There's going to be all kinds of great, great things. There won't be, obviously, there'll be no more thorns or thistles. There'll be no more threat of war. Or people trolling, or people suing, or people stealing. It'll be glorious, but there will be work. There will be commerce in the new heavens and the new earth, but commerce will be redeemed. There will be farming, but it will be redeemed. There will be uh, architecture, but it will be redeemed. There will be music, but it will be redeemed. There will be technology, but it will be redeemed. You will all have jobs in the new heavens and the new earth. I will probably be the only one without a job. My job is obsolete in the new heavens and the new earth. And the reason why it's obsolete, if you look at verse 10, look at verse 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. We all go to Jerusalem for church. I don't know how we get there so fast. Teleportation, that might be a thing in heaven. Wings, I have no idea. We got new bodies, or upgraded, I don't know. But we all, I mean, my, but I get a new job, and I can't wait. It's going to be really fun. I have a lot of suggestions um, in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so the Bible starts where we're working, right? I mean, God is a God who works. He's working, creating, at the very beginning of the Bible, the opening, Genesis chapter one, verse one, God is working, he's creating, he's building, he's creating, He's, he's shaping and forming animals, he's shaping and forming us, he's planting us in a garden. Then he says, You're made in my image and I want you to work. And then if you fast forward to the very end, the new heavens and the new earth, you and I are working. Work is glorious. Work is good. Work is a part of how we were made in the image of God. Now let's take this back down to earth. How do we work today though? How are we supposed to work today? Dorothy Sayers, a British author from a generation ago, has this very, very famous quote where it's in pretty much every vocational book that I'll read and it says this. And nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. And nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. I know that in a room like this, there are many of you, maybe not all of you, but many of you who love your work. And you may not feel like you have a secular vocation, like it's drudgery, like it's unspiritual. But I would say, I I think, I actually do think that you see your job as secular vocations. Even though you might love them, I believe that you think you, you see your job as secular vocations. Let me explain to you why I think that. We think, you may think, that work is work. I work for a paycheck. And my serving Jesus happens when I get off of work and I go to the TL and serve. I'd, my work is work, and then we work, and that's, I have a job, or career, and that's secular, and then I serve, and that's spiritual. I love my work. I love my job. I do it for a paycheck. I do it because I love finance, or technology, or music, or art, but then after I'm done with what I love to do, I have to go serve. I have to give back. This is what we think. I have to give back because deep down, we think work is about us. When we work and we love our jobs, we feel guilty, we feel guilty, we're like, oh, it's not really spiritual. I'm doing what I love to do, it's not really spiritual. And so after I'm done working, I better go serve in the TL and do something in the tenderloin or else I'll feel real, I need balance. I need to serve like, the, the job and the career and make the money but I also have to serve God. And serving God happens outside of my work. This is how a lot of us think. This is a. I now I want you to still serve in the TL but I want you to do it in a healthy way. And the way I want you to do it is I think Dorothy Sayers would say, she would say that you've lost your grip on reality. She would say there is no secular work. It's all sacred if you do it rightly. All work is sacred work. All work is God's work. However, there are some things you should not do. There's some jobs you should not take as a Christian. Like that's an obvious one. Like don't be a warlord or a bank robber. I mean, that's (laughs) kind of obvious. Um, But... Let me show you what, how Proverbs looks at work. This is the most, probably the, the most affirming passage on work in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 29. It says, Do you see someone skilled in their work? Do you see someone gifted? Another way to say skilled there in Proverbs is gifted. Do you see someone gifted or skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before the obscure. Keep that verse up for a minute. What this verse is talking about is talking about vocation. This verse is talking about commission. The word for work there, um, Bruce Walkie translates the word work as commission. I, I I love that. He's saying that, do you see someone skilled or gifted in their commission? They will serve before kings. What this verse is saying is that when someone is skilled and commissioned, it becomes sacred. And you become in the service of kings. See, when kings would hire you to do something, they wouldn't hire you, you work for the king, you would be commissioned by the king. So when if you build a, built a shield for the knights or whatever, you'd be commissioned as a blacksmith making shields for the king, for the sovereign lord. Like I've been commissioned by the king to build shields and you would take your job very seriously. And you would have great, great pride in your work. I'm commissioned by the king to make this shield. If you were to sew drapery, I'm being commissioned. You don't work for the king, you're commissioned by the king. If you were to put on a play for the king, you've been commissioned by the king to write a play. If you've been called to translate some sacred scripture, we've been commissioned by the king to translate this great text. You were commissioned by a king. This is called vocation, this is called a call. When you, when you match your, your skills or your gifts, with what God has maybe gifted you to do, your your work doesn't just become work anymore. It becomes like a divine call. It becomes a commissioning. It becomes like, I'm not just doing this for me. I'm not just doing this for San Francisco. I'm not just doing this to support my family. I've been commissioned by God to do this. And I'm going to take my work very, very seriously. This is talking about vocation. This is talking about being on, if you're commissioned by a king, you are on a mission. This is your mission. It it completely changes the way you see work. You're not working for a paycheck, though most of us in here, if we were honest, that's why we go to work. That's what we really want. What's the the pay package? Is there a good work-life balance? Can I take out of here? Can I have free lunches or whatever it is? And if we're really honest, that's what we do, but do we see our work as commissioned by God? Like, God has given me this to do. Like, I'm here. He's matched my gift sets and my talents and my education with this job, and I, though I do get paid for it, this is what I'm called, this is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm here to do. It's vocation. That word vocation is not a word we use often. It comes from the Latin word to word meaning voice. This is where we get Calling. What we're called, quote, called to do that. that we, we should um, release some, a little bit of weight off of that. We might think uh, you should refer to last week's teaching. You're called to do just one thing in one place. That's not necessarily true. A voice means that you have this invitation to do this. And we'll talk about that in a second. But let me read to you this quote. And this quote basically is saying by Parker Palmer that this, this voice doesn't come from without. It's not like this booming voice of, Dave, be a pastor. that I'd never heard that voice. I could be honest with you. I never heard God say, "Dave, be a pastor." It was I was going to school to be a fireman, like my father is. And as I was going on this path to do that, I was serving in ministry, and I felt like I love. I come alive when I do this. I come. I love doing it, and I want to give my life to it. And then through that, God led me to it. But it wasn't this voice, this calling. It was a calling from within. It wasn't this calling outside, and Parker Palmer talks about that. Parker Palmer, that's a tongue twister, and and let your life speak. This is, let me just quote. He says, vocation does not come from willfulness. This is really important. This is a really profound statement, okay? Vocation does not come from willfulness." willfulness. What he means by that is sometimes we will to do something. We want to do something. We have a will, we're like, I want to do that, I want to do that. But sometimes that's not where vocation comes from, not from our willfulness, like I'm going to do that thing because right now this, this job in, in, in San Francisco is sexy, I want to do that one job because it's so sexy. That's not where it comes from. It comes from listening. I must listen to my life and try to understand what, is, what it is truly about, quite apart from what I would like it to be about, or my life will never represent anything real in the world. A lot of us in here are like, well, this job is sexy and it makes a lot of money, I'll do that, but you're denying the very thing that you, that you know inside that I, I love what you love doing, what you were almost created to do. He says, um, no matter how earnest my intentions, that insight is hidden in the word vocation itself, which is rooted in the Latin for voice. Vocation does not mean a goal that I pursue, it means a calling that I hear. Before I can tell my life what I wanna do with it, I must listen to my life telling me who I am. I must listen for the truths and the values at the heart of my own identity, not the standards by which I must live, but the standards by which I cannot help but live if I am living my own life. Guys, this is talking about vocation. I'm not talking about morality here. I'm not saying, well, this is who I am, I'm gonna totally just do what the, this is talking about vocation. This is talking about how you live and how you work. You have to be true to your own life. I think the goal of vocation is to live your own God-given life. The goal of vocation is for you to live your own God-given life. There is limits and potentials in every single person in here. And sometimes your limits teach you more about how God wired you, how God made you, than your potentials. We, We live in a world that says you have endless potentials. Do whatever you want to do. But God's like, no, I've actually wired you a certain way. I've given you limits and I've given you potentials. Will you listen to that voice within? This is my personal, my own calling to vocational ministry was a calling from within. So how does our work become a calling? How does it become a vocation? Our work becomes vocation first as our work echoes God's work. Now this is where I want you to like think with me. Your work should echo God's work. Now, some of you in here, when I say that, you think, for my work to echo God's work, then I have to be a pastor, is what you're saying. I have to quit and do something in the ministry, is what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus said, when he was uh, trying to, where where he was getting insulted for healing someone on the Sabbath, he said, my father is always at work, and he is working until this very day. He's always working. When the Jews were like, you can't heal on the Sabbath, you're supposed to rest, and he's like, my father's working, My father's always working. God is a worker. Now, God is a worker, and the intrinsic value of work is that we are made to image or echoes God's work. That's what makes makes our work intrinsically good, is that it echoes God's work. Let me show you how it echoes God's work. This is how God works, and this is how we mirror that or echo that. Let me just go through a few of them. God does redemptive work. God does redemptive work. This is God's saving and reconciling actions in the world. God does this. How do we echo that? Well, there's all kinds of professions that echo that. There's pastoring and ministering, of course, but there's also counselors, therapists, psychiatrists. All who participate in the saving, reconciling work of humanity is echoing God's work. If you are in one of these fields, you are echoing God's redemptive work. And so you need to think of your work and see your work as part of God's work. That's what makes it intrinsically good. Not that you're just an honest psychiatrist, though that does help, but that you are echoing the very work of God. God is at work right now in reconciling people. There's also creative work. This comes from God's fashioning the physical and the human world. He continues to fashion the human and physical world. And there's people that do this today, entrepreneurs, actors, painters, musicians, producers, poets, dancers, if you are in this some sort of artistic field, some entrepreneurial field, you are echoing God's work. The the intrinsic value of your work, the very thing that you're doing is echoing God's work. When you're dancing, when you're creating, you are echoing God's creative work. God is at work to this very day creating and you are joining that. Do you see? There's also providential work. And this is God's provision for sustaining of humans and creation, which includes conserving and sustaining and replenishing. God's doing that to this very day. Now, if you're in po- a public worker, you're echoing this. If you're a policymaker, a shopkeeper, a farmer, a repairman, an engineer, a chef, a tailor, God bless tailors, finances, electricians, carpenters, technology, baristas, whatever, when you're in this field, the very thing that you're doing is intrinsically God's work. It's in, the, the thing that you're doing as a, as a policymaker in, in, in the Bay Area is intrinsically the work of God. It's God's providential work sustaining human, human flourishing, sustaining creation. There's also justice work, God's maintenance of justice in the world. And there's judges and lawyers, lawyers and paralegals and city managers and prison guards and peace officers and diplomats and supervisors. All of these sort of people, intrinsically, their work intrinsically echoes God's justice work in the world. If you are in any of these fields, the very nature of you being in this field is echoing God's work. You are taking up the work of God. There's also compassionate work. God's involvement in comforting and healing and guiding the world today and doctors, and nurses, and paramedics, and psychologists, and social workers, and nonprofit directors. You are all doing this. Intrinsically, by the fact that you're doing it, you're participating in the compassionate work of God that he is doing in the world right now. And there's revelatory work. God's work to enlighten with truth. There's pastors again. I put pastors in there twice because I wanted to feel good about myself. Pastors and scientists and educators and journalists and scholars and writers, you are all part of God's revelatory work. God is at work right now revealing truth to the world, revealing who he is, the, char- the characteristics of how he made the world, and scientists are a part of that. If you are a scientist in here and you're thinking, well, my work doesn't, doesn't coalesce with God's work. My work is, is like actually antithetical to God's work. No, it's not at all. God is at work right now revealing who he is, how he made everything, and scientists are on the cutting, the bleeding edge of all of this. Your work is intrinsically, you have to realize first that your work is intrinsically God's work. I would add being a parent is all of these works combined. That great work of being a mom or a dad, or taking all of redemptive, creative uh, providential, judicial, a lot of times, um, compassionate, <laughs> revelatory. It's all of those works, like, and shepherding a child. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when we normally hear about faith and work, we forget about the intrinsic value of work. I just want to give you that again. I want you to receive that as a gift. This morning, I, when, I th- when we talk about faith and work, it's not like, faith and work, that means I have to, like, evangelize everyone in my office. That means I have to be, like, Like I have to just be the honest whatever I do, the honest engineer. Yes, those are all true. I mean, maybe don't evangelize everyone in your work. Wait for God to open up a door, but that's a whole different sermon. But what you should be doing is, first of all, realizing the intrinsic value of your work. Working as an engineer has intrinsic value. It is actually partnering with God. As you are doing these things, how work is a part of God's working this very day is so important to understand. So it's not just how we work, like honest and diligent and well, it's what we're doing has value because it's what God is doing to this very day. Now, to say that there is no secular or sacred divide is not the same thing as saying that, there, that all secular pursuit is equally worthy. And that's not true at all. There are some jobs that are out of bounds, that's morally out of bounds, and that is. That sh- you should know that. I mean, I, I can't list all of them right now, but there's some things you're like, that's morally out of bounds, I can't do that. But I will also say this, and maybe you need to hear this as well, especially in a room like this. There are some jobs that are plain unwise for followers of Jesus to have. They're just unwise. That you really need to seek wisdom and go, am I adding to human flourishing? Am I really partnering with God and in the intrinsic value of who God is and then making him known in the world through this thing? Am I really adding to human flourishing? Or am I caught up in making money and making the next thing? And does the world really need the next thing? Am I, do, am I partnering? Some of you guys need to really think heavily through that. And we'll talk about why in a second. But not only are some jobs morally out of bounds, we have to be wise. We can't waste time. Now, the journey, the goal is to find the, what's called the vocational sweet spot. So I have another diagram for you today that I got from the book I just read. Um, this is a really fun one. It's the vocational sweet spot that I think that a lot of people, not everyone, I, I'll add one caveat to this. For some of us, this is not a reality. You will never, ever, ever find the vocational sweet spot. You can always look for it, and that's fine. But as you look through these, the priorities of God and the, the world's need, meaning your family's need, trumps anything else and that's completely okay. I'm teaching this sermon in a different way than I teach it in probably any other city. But I would imagine for a lot of us in here, for a lot, we can be looking for that vocational sweet spot. Now the vocational sweet spot is when we look at God's priorities, and God's priorities are the ones that we, I read a second ago. God's priorities always have to do with loving God and loving neighbor. God's priorities always have to do with, with servant leadership. Jesus said, I come among you to be a servant. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. So whatever you do runs the filter of the priorities of God, bringing about human flourishing. But also, what we have to factor in there is my passions and my gifts. How has God wired you? What kind of passions do you have? What kind of gift set do you have? How has God wired you, made you, and gifted you? I mean, you might need other people in your life to tell you that. But the last thing is the world's needs. What does the world need? And then how does what God's gifted you to do fit into the world's needs? Though, I will say the world has every need. Like, you're like, what does the world need? Everything, right? Like, you can't name one thing the world doesn't need. But how has God gifted you, and how has God prioritized your life in a certain bin, in a certain way, to go, this, the world has needs, the world has many needs, but this one need, I want to live my life to meet this need because God has so prioritized my life and gifted me this way. Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite writers, says this very famous quote. One probably his very famous quote. He says, "The place God calls you to be is the place where your deepest gladness and the world's hunger meet. That is money. The place that God calls you is a place where your deepest gladness, your passions, your desires, how God has wired you, and the world's deepest hunger come together." Now, notice what Beekner says. First, he starts off with self and moves towards the needs of the world. I think Buechner wisely starts with vocation, not the world's need, because the world has every need. But how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to uniquely meet my human self supposed to, supposed to meet the world's needs? Knowing that I've been put on here with the gifts that God has created me for. Now, when I say all this, I want to add one Giant caveat to everyone in the room. And this is really, really important. At the very beginning of my sermon, I had this at the very beginning of the sermon, but I decided to put it at the very end because I wanted to build all of this up and then tell you this. You will never understand Proverbs until you, especially in, in the topic of um, work, diligence, laziness, and even wealth and poverty. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Unless you understand the context of Proverbs. Normally, a a good pastor would start off with the context first, but I'm tricky today. I'm going to start with it last. The context is everything. Proverbs originated in a time of immense privilege in Israel. Proverbs originated in a time of immense privilege in Israel. Most of the Proverbs were written by King Solomon who ushered in the richest time in Israel's history. At one place it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 that during Solomon's reign, silver and gold were as common as rocks in Israel. If you've ever been to Israel, there's a lot of rocks. He said the time of Solomon, you pick up a rock and go, whatever. Gold, whatever. Like gold was so, there was so, uh, there's so much gold, there's so much wealth in Israel, there's so much privilege in Israel. During the time of Solomon... That there was as much rocks as there were gold. That's a lot of wealth. That's a lot of privilege. So often, when Proverbs contrasts the diligent and the sluggard, it will warn the sluggard that if you continue to be lazy, it will lead you to poverty. It will lead you to poverty. Now, let's talk about this for a second because some of you in here might be offended going, Look at this. Proverbs talks about everyone wealthy and leaving the. Pro- There's some people that are born into poverty. What, what you must know about the context of Proverbs is that it, it assumes privilege and calls us to stewardship. Proverbs assumes privilege, it assumes that we have privilege, it assumes that we were born into a time that is very wealthy. Proverbs originated in a time when Israel was cra- had crazy wealth. And the reason why it says laziness will lead to poverty is because it assumes that even the lazy had privilege. They had advantage, and they were not to waste that advantage. One historian writes this, for Proverbs to remain true, even as generalizations, one must, one must have general control over one's work, life, and family with no severe systemic social problems. What this historian notices, and what this historian points out, is that the context of Proverbs was written in such a place that everyone had privilege. It would assume that you had control over even if you wanted to work or didn't wanna work. You weren't enslaved. It, it, It assumed that you had something. So when he's saying that Proverbs, when he's saying this for the Proverbs, to even work, it assumes that poverty wasn't caused at this time by severe systemic social problems that the listener of Proverbs had a general control over the way they worked or even if they wanted to work or not. So listen to this. Look at Proverbs 24. I went past a field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere and the ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and I learned a lesson from what I saw, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding in the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a thief. Now, what I notice here, if I'm observing this, what is a sluggard doing with a vineyard? If you think about that, you're like, whoa, wait, wait, I can't even afford a vineyard. How does a sluggard have a vineyard? What it, assumes, what it assumes is that Israel had such immense privilege that even lazy people had great wealth. And you know what they were doing with their wealth, and their privilege, and their responsibility? They were squandering. They weren't good stewards of it. Guys, we live, and the reason why I can say that most of us in here can choose our jobs, because most of us in here can. You could probably quit your job right now and go and take, gosh, I hear this all the time. This is the, I don't hear this anywhere else in the world. I mean, not that I go all around the world every day. But I hear a lot of stories. This is the only place I've ever heard, like, hey, I just, I just quit my job. I'm taking, like, six months off. I'm just going to try to see what I'm doing next. I'm like, how, how do you afford to take six months off? How, how do you even afford to live here? And then take six months off to decide what you want to do. We, you guys have crazy privilege, insane privilege, where you can choose your job. Like, I'm in tech, but I don't really do, I want to do finance. I don't know if do, I'm going to do the arts. And you guys can choose what you want. Are you kidding me? That is such crazy, and say all you want about how hard it is to live here, you are privileged. You're very privileged, but some of you are lazy. Some of you in here are squandering your privilege. Some of you in here, your proverbial vineyard is all covered with weeds, your walls torn down, you have no self-control at all, you are wasting your privilege. The first thing that you have to realize that Proverbs says, the reason why lazy people go to poverty is because they're not stewarding rightly what God's given them. Jesus tells this striking parable at the end of Matthew. It's called the parable of talents, one of the most famous parables that he ever tells He says, I give a bag of gold to everyone, everyone different, everyone has different talents, and then then everyone, there's three people, not everyone, three guys, three people, and two of them come back and go, we, we worked with what you gave us, and we, we have more now. We were good. And Jesus says to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. Good and faithful. You were faithful with little, I will make you faithful with much. I gave you this thing, this small thing, this gift, this privilege. You were born into a time, and you live in a city with crazy, insane privilege, and you were using it, and you used it for my glory and the good of society. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the third one said, I was so afraid of you, I didn't even know what to expect. I didn't even know who you were. I heard that you reap what you did not sow. I heard that you, you, you took what you did not put in. Like he's basically calling him a wicked master. He's like, I heard you were just a mean, harsh person. So I buried it. I didn't do anything with it. Here it is. Here's your, your, your share back. And, G, and Jesus says in the parable, he's like, you wicked and lazy servant. You squandered what I gave you? First of all, you don't even know who I am. I'm not. I'm not that person. I'm not, I don't reap what I have not. So I don't do that. You have no idea who I am, do you? You are wicked and you're a lazy servant. I gave you this great wealth, this great gift, this great opportunity, and you squandered it. Church, the warning for us today, the warning I felt like, I wanted to get to to the end of this sermon and tell you is that you have a lot of privilege. Probably people that listen online or a podcast, they don't have the privilege you have. They might hear this and get really, really, really jealous going, wait, they can choose their jobs there? They can like quit and then take time off and then go work where they want to work? You have insane privilege. Do not waste it. Do not waste what God's given you. Do not be lazy. Do not be a sluggard. Do not think of your work as just for you, just for yourself, for your stuff, for your things. Do not waste. We must steward our privilege well. Now, how do we keep that statement from crushing us, okay? How do we keep what I just said from, I mean, I could end right here, and I guarantee the prayer carpets will be full. (laughs) That would be a really good way to end the sermon. I just drop the mic and go, deal with it, people, and I just (laughs) sleep. And the prayer teams we packed, and down here, why God, just everyone just, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, But how do we keep that statement from crushing us? Because it can. That can totally crush us. You're like, what are you saying? Like, I have that sort of responsibility. Who can do that well? Who can stand before a king? Because the, the way that that one proverb said that the, the skillful person that, that is commissioned will serve before kings, what, that has this aura of this person standing before the king and go, you can trust me, king. I can do that job well. I won't bring you shame. I'll do it well. Who has that sort of, that sort of confidence? Maybe 2% of you in here, maybe two of you in here have that confidence. Maybe. Everyone else just brings anxiety. Like, what if I fail? What if I, what if I don't crush it? What if I don't work really, really hard and I squander it? What you need to know, what you need to learn right now is that you do not work for your salvation. You do not work for your salvation. Your salvation was, was, was earned for you by God. This is something that I equally have to teach this church because I don't think there are many people lazy in the sense they don't get out of bed and don't want to go to work they might be lazy in the way that they're not diligent and self-controlled with their work, but I, I think there's, an, there's an, a, a work workaholism that goes on here, like I have to work, I have to work, I have to work, and I fall into that as well. Recently, um, I don't think i told this story here before. Um, if I have, just bear with me. Recently, I was invited to do a, um, a speaking thing in L.A., and it was like a, felt like a, um, a, a really good opportunity, and, uh, and so I, I, I accepted it. And um, it was a, almost a really, it was kind of, like, to me, a big deal, if I could say that, without sounding super stupid. Um, and so I, I go down, down south, and I do this thing, and, um, and I absolutely bomb. Like, it was horrible. Like, horrible. I, I've, I've spoke a, a lot of times, a lot of places, and I've seen people do really good, and I've seen people really bomb. And I know what it feels like to bomb, and I completely did it. To where I was, I was embarrassed. Um, And then as soon as I got done speaking, I like grabbed my bag and I walked right out of the room and I got on a a, a cab to go back to the airport. And I started having a panic attack, like full on panic attack. Like like, the left side of my body went numb, I couldn't see straight, like my heart was palpitating. I was going, I felt like my heart was gonna explode. I was having a full on panic attack. And I finally get on the plane, I'm flying home back to San Francisco and um, I start just really reflecting on what the heck went wrong. And I heard, I heard God say, why are you still trying to prove yourself through your work? Why are you still trying to prove yourself? Why are you still trying to prove your worth through what you do? I was, and here's the irony. I was actually teaching on how we're not supposed to do that. (laughs) I'm not joking. Like I was teaching on, guys, we're not supposed to find our identity in what we do. All the while I was doing that and I, I did a horrible job and I had a panic attack God was, and then God said, you're still, you're still doing that, aren't you? See, I think this is, this is the way that we're, we're free. This is the only way to get free. This is the only way to balance both like, God, I want to be a good steward and it frees me from, I don't try to find my identity. I don't try to find myself in my work is that we realize that our our Worth, our acceptedness, our belovedness is not because of what we do. It's given to us by God. And so Paul the Apostle ties work with who we are right here in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, he says this in verse 8 For it is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not from yourself, it is a gift of God. You are not saved by your work, and you are not saved by your effort. You are saved by the grace of God, not by works so that no one can boast, so that you can, you can't stand before God one day and say, God, I killed it, didn't I? (laughs) Like, I deserve, let me in, let me in. Like, I, I know some of us want to do, like, do you see what, you know all this stuff? Like, I love, I, I desert, no one can boast. Then he says this, for we are God's workmanship. We are God's handiwork. Here is the most freeing, most amazing, most brilliant thing I'll say today, that you are God's work. You are. You are God's, and the word there is poema. It's like, where the word poem comes from, like you are God's handiwork, his work of art, his masterpiece, get as cheesy as you want with that illustration, whatever. You are God's work, he, and he's created you, and he's created you with gifts, and you are gonna fail, and you are gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna stumble through this thing, and God's promise to you is that hey, I'm, I'm working on you still. Like you, can, you could bomb in Southern California, and then I'll speak to you on the plane, and I'll correct the way you're going because you're my work. I'm working on you. We have work. We're to be stewards of, but at the same time, God's working on us. God's changing our hearts. God's changing our appetites. God's changing the way that we see the world. God's changing our passions to line up with his. God's at work in us, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God has like a work. That he's like, I want, there's a way that I want you to live. There's a way I want you to, and and you're going to find that. You're not going to, this is God's hidden will, as we talked about last week. You're not going to, you're only going to find that as you walk. As you try to find that vocational sweet spot. As you keep readjusting. And the only reason why I could say that church is that this church has immense privilege. Don't squander that. Be faithful with that. Then keep it in right perspective. You are God's work. God, I thank you for these things, these truths. Help us, God, to see work differently, to see vocation differently, to see our calling differently, God. And I pray that we would all hear the voice of God this morning, all of us, would hear the voice of God, that we are your work. That we are your work, God, that you're working on us, that you're working through us. God, I pray for anyone in here that they've, they've used some sort of excuse. Um, and that excuse sounds something like, as soon as I clean up my life or do these things, then I'll, I'll go to God. I pray that you would deliver people from that thought right now. That's just so wrong. There's nothing that we can give you, God. There's nothing that we could present to you. Nothing to earn our salvation. It's a gift, and we receive it by faith. I pray that hearts would turn to you right now, Christ. I pray that we'd find ourselves in you. In Jesus' name, amen.